Hello and welcome to episode 91 of Beekeeping at Five Apple Farm. This is Lee. I'm so glad you've joined me today. It feels so good to be talking to all of you and I like imagining that you're out there and I just want to say thank you for being listeners and thank you especially and always for the patrons that keep this whole podcast going. All right, so today I thought I would talk to you about fall feeding. I was listening to a podcast. It is Honeybee Obscura, Kim Flottam and Jim Tugue, Honeybee Obscura. It's a podcast I, I enjoy listening to. It's funny, you know, you listen to other beekeepers and <laughs> I'm sure that other beekeepers li- feel this way when they're listening to this podcast. I'm just listening along and going, oh, I, I wouldn't do that or Oh man, I don't, I don't agree with that. <laughs> and there's just a hundred ways to do anything in beekeeping. There's actually a part where one of the guys says that there's a hundred ways to do a thing. You can be pretty sure that there's not one best way. And that is so true in beekeeping. There are so many things that are affected by the kind of equipment you happen to be using, the type of bees you happen to have, and Definitely, always the microclimate that you find yourself in and the time of the season because some of the exact procedures that are right on in the spring are so, so wrong in the fall. I'll give you an example. I saw a post on some social media and you know how I feel about that on beekeeping, but I saw a post and some poor fella had come back from vacation to find that his hive was apparently queenless. And this was in Western North Carolina. And this was about a week ago. So that would have been the last week of September. And he was like, does anybody have a queen or a frame of brood that I could have? Because my hive has apparently gone queenless. I was like, oh man, you know, do I, do I even bother to write? But I did. I wrote back on there that in my opinion, It is way, way too late to be messing with a new queen, even a mated queen, much less letting the hive make a queen. Because you think about it, bee math is a tough mistress, but she won't lie to you. And bee math is for real. So, for example, if there are any significant drones left in the high mountains in late September, which is iffy. Most of my hives have gotten rid of their drones already. If there's drones out there, you're talking about if he, someone gave him a frame of brood and it's got an egg on it, which is pretty much what they need to start with, then it's going to be 16 days before that queen emerges, a few more days before she can go out on her mating flight. Let's say she finds some guys out there. (laughs) Long shot, but let's say she does. She comes back. It's a few more days. She starts laying on a queen that's just come back from her mating flight. She doesn't just suddenly have sheets of brood. It's a, it's a slow process. She gradually builds it up and then And then think about how long a worker bee is under that cap. It's a while. And so by the time she has a brood nest, by the time she has made enough bees to get through the winter, what month is it? I mean, that's just not realistic at all. You know, people just think, oh, I don't have a queen. So therefore, I can either get a mated queen or I can get a frame of brood. You know, on May 1st, Sure, that that will work fine. You can start with a frame of brood to probably get a new queen. All good. But on September 
29th or <laughs> 28th, whatever it was, that is not going to work. So I wrote and said it's way, and my inner voice said way, 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 way too late to have a self-requeen or have the hive to make a queen. In nature, if that hive is truly queenless, in nature it is dead. Side note here. Just because it's dead doesn't mean all is lost because, you know, bees do these amazing things. Just the way that if they go queenless in the summer and maybe they don't have any success in making their queen. And remember how you you get laying workers, which for a beekeeper is terrible. But think about it for the species that's going to make a whole bunch of drones. Well, how better to reproduce the genetics of that hive after a lost queen than to make a bunch of drones? Now, for a beekeeper, it sucks. Not going to work. But. For the species, it's going to send its genes out there to keep going. End of side note. This is total nod to Kevin England of Kevin moment. <laughs> I'll just say side note. Anyway, so I told the fella it's way too late to start with a frame of brood. And it is almost, I mean, depending on the population of the hive, it's almost too late to start with a mated queen, like adding a mated queen. Because again, how many young bees are there? Because they didn't they didn't go queenless one day. It's probably been a while if he, if he finally noticed that he was queenless. And so how long is it going to take for her to make enough fresh young bees to get through the winter? So even then, it's a long shot. But what I told the fella was if it were my hive, I would look at combining that hive with another hive. So maybe there's another hive that I'm like, oh, you know, this was a late split and they're a little small, but oh, hey, I've got this queenless hive. Let's combine those and make lemonade. But then the fella said, I only have one hive. Yeah, that's a that's a bummer. And one of my friends, Michelle, who is a queen rearer, wrote back, and said, because people were recommending, oh, you can get a queen from Michelle. And Michelle wrote back and said, "Mm, you might just want to look really careful in there to make sure it is truly queenless, because a lot of times this time of year, they'll just not have much brood. And for a beginner, that could be easily mistaken for queenless. Actually, it can be easily mistaken by anybody. And you notice she didn't say, hey, call me up and get a queen (laughs) because she knows that it is very late to get a queen and bless her heart. She wouldn't even take this guy's free money, you know, to throw away one of her good queens. So anyway, that is just a way to say your microclimate is going to be the boss of what you can do um, at any given time of the year. So here in the high mountains, I have fewer options than, say, a beekeeper in Florida. Beekeeper in Florida still has tons of options because it's eternal summer almost there, but it's not. We have really switched gears here in the mountains, and fall is upon us. I continue to be pleased at the progress of my bees. A lot of that was simply because I stopped queen rearing and I stopped making splits earlier than I have in the past few years. And I'll tell you that is, it has made all the difference because pretty much all the hives I have are of, nearly all the hives I have, are of an overwintering size that is viable if the odds are in their favor. And that's a good feeling because last year, this time of year, I was just in dismay that I had so many hives that were just too small to overwinter on their own power. And so I thought, oh, let me put them in the bee shed. But that didn't work either because there just has to be a certain amount of cluster size. 
Honeybee Obscura, they were talking about feeding, which other than size of the cluster and freedom from disease and mites, the next thing that is the most controllable thing that a beekeeper can do is to make sure they're going into winter with enough stores. Now, one of the things they mentioned at the very beginning of their podcast was to stop and ask, why do these bees need feeding? So I wrote a quick list. There are several, I got five, reasons why a hive might need to be fed. Number one, the beekeeper took too much honey. Now, sometimes this is their management or an accident. And when I say their management, commercial producers often take all the honey and feedback sugar, syrup, or some kind of syrup to get the bees through. That, in my opinion, is not good ethical beekeeping. To me, the goal, if one is a sustainable beekeeper, you want to take only the bees' excess honey and let them winter on their own honey. Now, there's many times that it's not going to happen. Let's say that you they had just tons of honey in the late summer and you took a bunch of honey, you're so happy, you're bottling, and you're like, oh, they're going to fill up those hives on the fall flow. And for whatever reason, you don't have a fall flow. Like here in the mountains, sometimes that's because it's endless rain or it's too dry and there's no flow. Or the goldenrod is just feeling fickle that year and you've got no flow. You've got no fall flow. So it can be an honest accident of how much honey you took versus how much they have. And you get that sick feeling because you sold or gave away to friends and family all that honey and now your bees are too light and you've got to do something about it. So beekeeper taking too much, that's the number one reason why bees don't have enough honey. Another reason, it could just be a bad year. And this could happen, uh, this happened last year actually. The weather was just, just fricked up enough (laughs) in every single season to not be a good honey year. We had a late, hard-killing frost, which did in a lot of the blooms. Then there was rain at some points, and then there was dry at some points. Just you name it, it was wrong last year up at my elevation for a good honey flow. So the flow sucked, and even though I tried to make up for it in feeding, I believe I saw the results not having that good natural flow that I just both threw inattention and also just you cannot duplicate value of a flow for a bee. So you could have a bad year, a reason why your bees might not have enough stores. The other reason is your bees may be in a bad spot. And by that, for whatever reason, maybe your bee yard is in an area that just doesn't have much nectar. Or maybe it has a very specific nectar flow. If that misses, if that's a miss, then there's nothing else. And this can be an issue in the forest because we have in the spring huge tree flows if there is a flow. If the tulip poplar and the black locust, if all that happens beautifully, you've got more honey than you know what to deal with. On the other hand, if you have some weird tree disease, too much rain or a bad frost, you might have zilch. And it's all forest, so it's not like an area that has a lot of wildflowers. You could be out of luck, so a bad spot. And the other reason that a spot can be bad is there's too many bees for that spot. And I'll give you an example. My home yard here, I am just in a little tiny valley in the middle of a national forest. So when the trees bloom well 
I might have a good honey flow, but it's very all or none. I can see that this spot here at my home farm cannot reliably support a bunch of bee colonies. I mean, that is very real. So if some neighbor of mine brought in a dozen colonies, it would hurt my bees in terms of forage. And my bees would hurt their bees in terms of forage. This little valley that I'm in doesn't have that much forage on an everyday basis. Occasionally, we hit a royal flush. They pack it out, but that is definitely occasional. So a bad spot can be connected to nectar resources, or there can just be too many bees in a spot. And the reason I say that is because my one out yard at a farm about four four or five miles from here It's much more open. It's in a larger valley. There's a lot more open land, pasture, people's homes. Those hives put in a lot more honey than my hives here at home. It's it was pretty noticeable. I should say in the um, the spring everybody put in good honey, but in the summer, the bees over at that farm did a lot better. And that's another thing that the bees maybe the end of summer. Your hives were so heavy, you couldn't believe it. But if you have a dry fall, or like maybe here in in my home yard, there's just not a ton of late summer resources, then they can have a ton of honey and then eat a ton of honey even before winter starts. So I'm classifying all of that as just bad spot. And then the other thing that can cause a hive to not have enough stores is that it was a split. It was, I mean, a package, it goes without saying, a package, um, a nuke, a small nuke, or a split. All of those are unnatural splits. And that's not to say that they are bad. It's just to say that in a natural swarm, a hive won't naturally swarm until they have a certain level of population and a certain level of stores. And so they are basically feeling flush. They're like, oh my gosh, our ship has come in. Let's let's swarm. Let's split this colony. So what happens is the hive that's left behind is left with enough stores and enough brood to start again. And they've got all that drawn comb, which is their secret weapon. And then the, the swarm that leaves They have enough bees. They've all gorged on honey. So they're carrying their lunch bags with them to to draw enough comb to get them started. And so in a natural situation, you would never have what we do all the time in splitting, which is to take a couple of frames, add a mated queen and call it a colony and, you know, gradually build it up. And that's why you hear me talking a lot about feeding bees even though I go to extreme lengths to not take too much honey. Still, because I make many divisions of my colonies, they start out unnaturally small. What they need is either a fabulous flow, but even if there's a fabulous flow, this unnaturally small couple of frames of bees, they don't have a flying force that can take advantage of that fabulous flow. So pretty much divisions, split packages, nukes, all of those are probably going to need feeding to get them to winter size, usually. Everything in beekeeping is sometimes, usually, if, (laughs) unless. All right, so those are the the reasons why um, a hive might not have enough honey. The final one is the thing that they mentioned in Honey Bee Obscura is 
there's something wrong with that hive, with that queen. And that could be diseases, that could be mites, that could be a bad queen. The easiest one of that type to spot is let's say you've got five hives. They all are started out roughly the same size. They're all packed with honey except one. That's a big signal that something is not right with that hive. It may be the quality of the queen. It may be that there's some disease going on. But if you have an outlier that's just not on par with everybody else, even though they started out at the same size, then that can be a signal that it's a bad hive. And that's one of the, the, one of the guys on Honeybee Obscura was saying, in a case like that, you're just delaying the inevitable by, by feeding that hive. And, and unfortunately, I would say that's often true because if something's wrong with them then having a bunch of food is not going to fix it sadly then they talked about how do you know when to feed there are many beekeepers and some professional beekeepers like michael palmer in vermont who literally weigh every hive they have a magic number and they want every hive to weigh that much and and they will weigh them and then feed the difference to bring them up to weight because they've done it long enough and they're doing it on scale to the degree that they know the exact pound of that they need to get them through. In my yard that even if I weighed them, which I don't, they would probably not work because so many of my hives, almost every hive, there's some type of experiment going on. Either it's a different queen line that I'm trying out, or it was a split, or it was something, something. But I do not have, because I don't do commercial honey, you know, I don't have those yards where every hive you expect to be consistent. For me, weighing them is not realistic. That said, that there is a absolute minimum weight to get through, that's real. And that is true of all my hives, regardless of their size, that there is just a certain amount of weight. Now, unfortunately, I can't tell you how many pounds that is because it's after all this time, it's kind of a feeling. And basically, I wish I could relay this, but it's just like I know how many boxes are on that hive. And if I feel of them and they feel heavy for that size, I'm like, okay, things are going well. If I feel of them and they feel light for that size, I'm like, "Mm, they need food. So I'm sorry to not be of much help. They mentioned an amount, and this is something that your mentor hopefully can tell you, a a pound amount for your location that is simply the minimum amount to get through. I've always been taught up here in the high mountains of western North Carolina that 50 pounds is about the minimum to get through. Now, that comes with a big asterisk because there are many things that can affect that 50 pounds when (laughs) and how active they are you know the more active bees are the more they burn up their calories just like us when I see sunny days in winter and it's warm and all the bees come out and they're all out and wandering around and on one hand that's lovely because yeah they get their cleansing flights yay but on the other hand they're just burning up their honey because they're out there looking for something that doesn't exist which is a a nectar source If we have a lot of that, they can burn through a tremendous amount of honey. By that, if you had a large hive, you went into winter with 50 pounds, they're going to be running short by the spring and you're not going to need to um, supplement them. I'll talk about that in a second. But on the other hand, if you have a lot of that, what I think of as kind of twilight weather, 
cold and chilly and damp and maybe it's in the 40s and it just kind of hangs there and the sun's not out real bright and it just hangs there actually that is a great temperature for bees because right around in the 40s they're in cluster but not in tight cluster if they happen to be insulated they're in very loose cluster they're not going anywhere they're not out there looking for anything and that is an excellent it's an extremely efficient temperature if it just hangs right there for a long time. And sometimes we, we get that kind of winter and it's amazing you get to late winter and you can't believe how heavy they still are. The other thing that they talked about on the Honey Bee Obscura podcast was in, I believe, um, I believe they're keeping bees in like northern Ohio. And they, they mentioned um, 50 to 60 pounds of honey. But this is the part that I kind of didn't get because one of them was saying if a hive weighs 150, so they're, and they're talking about a double deep. If it weighs 150 pounds, then that probably means you got 50 or 60 pounds of honey. And I'm kind of amazed at that because if I've got a double D and let's just say zero food, just bees, just comb, just equipment, I kind of can't imagine that weighing 100 pounds. But anyway, they talked about hefting as, as a kind of old skill. And I'll confess that is hefting or just lifting one end of your hive and tilting it and getting a sense of the weight. That is what I use. I would not recommend it unless you are familiar with how much your equipment and bees weigh without any honey. That is that's hard. Over the years, you'll get to know. He said that he uses a spring scale. And I'm not sure exactly what that is, but it sounded almost like a luggage scale that you hooked under one side of the hive, lifted it up, got a weight, and then you hooked it under the other side of the hive, lifted it up, got a weight, and then you added them together. And I'm not exactly sure how that works, but if you needed to know an exact weight, and if you were the kind of person that a number makes you feel relaxed, then that would be something to explore. Let's say you go out there and if you are me, you're hefting the back end of the hive and you're kind of getting a feel. In my mind, I'm also knowing how big that hive is. For example, uh, let's say a full-size hive going in. That thing, my goal is to be where I can barely lift the back end to tilt it. That is how heavy, I mean, if I do that, yes, that thing is a brick and it gets a big old check mark on the list. If on the other hand, feels kind of iffy, I, then I write down that it's light and that I need to address. If I get warm weather, I might can go in there and actually see how many frames they have and figure it out from there. So maybe take that opportunity to consolidate it and get the, get the frames where I want them to be, which is above uh, the brood nest or above the bees. And I'll use that as a segue because a friend was saying when I was talking to her on the phone the other day for a completely unrelated reason. She's a new beekeeper. And she was saying, oh yeah, I lost a hive last year and I had the bee inspector come out and do the autopsy and they didn't have mites. But what had happened is they had gotten stranded away from their honey stores. And this is something I wouldn't be surprised if that is worse in 10 frame hives than in eight frame hives, because I mean, it definitely could happen in, in eight frame hives. And what I have seen my colonies do is kind of chimneying, uh, like a chimney. They're all, they 
go straight up the middle and maybe it's a fairly tall heavy hive but they just go straight up the middle so their their honey is still on the sides and again this would be worse with a 10 frame than with an 8 frame but you have that scenario and it seemed to be what my friend was describing where if you have a long stretch of really cold weather to the point where they can't move around the hive at all they are in a cluster a tight cluster and especially in late winter when they have a little bitty bit of brood If they get in a tight cluster on that brood, then the moment that that cluster cannot touch honey, they begin to starve. And so it's all about, will that cold snap last longer than the food inside their bodies? And if it does, they starve to death all at once because the bees share every last drop of nutrition with everybody and then they starve all at once. It is tragic. It is sad. It's a total bummer. And it is the reason why I use the winter patties. And just to be clear, (laughs) this is not a sponsorship. This is just something I have discovered. The winter patties, and I got mine from, I think it was Man Lake or Daydant. I can't remember one of those. But the title of them is not pollen patties, but winter patties. And they look like a pollen patty, but they have a different recipe that has very little protein. It has some, but unlike a pollen patty, um, they could actually live on it in the winter, even if they didn't have anything else. Now that's not ideal, but they, they can. And I have had hives that have survived. But then again, I've also had hives that survived when they'd eaten all their honey. And maybe the winter was longer than I expected or the population was bigger or whatever. For whatever reason, they just didn't, they ate all their honey. And then when the weather's cold, you face that problem that you can't feed syrup. Now, this is a big, important thing to know, beginners. Below 50 degrees, the bees cannot take syrup. Now, that means it's 50-something but it's 50-ish, and it's the temperature of the syrup. Once the syrup is 50-ish degrees, the bees cannot take it. And that is because if they take that cold syrup because they are quote-unquote cold-blooded, it will just immobilize them right there. And so they know better than to take that cold syrup. And what is sad is you can have a much warmer day than 50 degrees, yet if your night is cooler than 50 degrees and that syrup is both slow to cool but also slow to warm you can have syrup on there say a mason jar or one of the many type of hive top feeders that feed sugar syrup it is very easy to have syrup that's too cold for the bees to take even though the middle of the day you've beautiful sunny warm day but not beautiful sunny long enough to warm up that syrup So syrup is very time limited. In the mountains, we are at the absolute last call of syrup. And I'm already seeing that some of the, some of the hives, you know, they'll, I'll have a mason jar and there'll be half the mason jar left the next day. And that just means it got too cool at night, cooled off too much, and then didn't warm it up, warm up enough in the day to warm the syrup so they can take it. One of the other easy peasy things that people do is mountain camp feeding or just feeding dry sugar. As with anything easy peasy, there are drawbacks. And that is feeding dry sugar is essentially just on the top of that inner cover. You pour out some granulated sugar and you call it good. You put the outer cover on. Some people will say, oh, you know, it's good. It it absorbs moisture. And the good part about that absorbing moisture is that that little pile of sugar that you put in there 
they're not going to carry it out as trash because it's sort of, um, you know, slicked over and gets hard as sugar will if it's in a wet environment. So that's a good thing in that they're not just literally throwing it out the front door after you put it in there. But the big drawback to feeding dry sugar on top of the inner cover is they have to leave the cluster to get it. And they have to have access to enough water to use it. And so this, I'm not a huge fan of the whole dry sugar thing on top of the inner cover because anything that's separated from the cluster, the moment it gets too cold for them to move around, then they're cut off to have the moisture component and they have to have enough time for all that to happen to go up there and have water or it to be wet enough for them to lick the, sh- the sugar and then take it back down to the cluster. And to me, that's a lot that can go wrong. Um, my friend who had lost the hive, she said, yeah, you know, I put dry sugar on the inner cover. I've lost some hives from dry sugar. Once I realized everything they need to make that work, I just don't even bother with that anymore, especially since before it gets wet. I mean, you can mist it with water to make it develop a hard surface. To me, the holy grail of feeding, if you have to, I mean, the holy grail is to not have to feed at all, but if you have to, is to have something that is directly above the cluster. And in most hives, that means on the top bars, not outside the inner cover, but on the top bars. And this is where fondant or sugar cakes or sugar candy come into play. Fondant is this weird stuff that, and it's if you look up Baker's fondant, F-O-N-D-A-N-T, it is used a lot in the UK as winter feed. And they're so lucky because their fondant is just made from sugar and sugar syrup. It's fine for bees. And so it comes, it's, it's kind of this soft, gooey patty. They can essentially slice it or open it, lay it right on the top bars above the cluster. And the bees, if they run out of food or if they just get separated from their food, like their honey is way on the outside and they're right in the middle, if they've got that fondant right above their head, and then the moisture of the exhaling bees makes it really perfect. But for whatever reason, our baker's fondant in the United States is almost all made with a lot of corn syrup. That's not good for the bees. So you don't hear about as many beekeepers here just buying fondant out from a restaurant supply place. The winter patties that I got from Manlaker Data, I can't remember, they do have some high fructose corn syrup, but not a lot. It's not the first or second ingredient and it just makes them soft and so this is an important thing because when some people will say fondant and what they're talking about is what I call a sugar cake or a sugar brick and that is I mean all this is just different recipes for sugar but the fondant is soft it is I think what they make some kinds of icing and like a wedding cake thing that Uh, how would you describe that? That just melts into the shape of the cake. I think that is what is done with fondant. I think that's what it's for in the real world outside of bees. It's soft. It's creamy. It's kind of like soft taffy. Or Whereas the sugar brick or sugar cakes is like hard candy. I, for many years, got by with sugar bricks. I used Lori, the queen breeder out of Washington. Her recipe for sugar bricks 
that you don't even have to cook. You don't, you just basically massage sugar with um, a little tiny bit of water, some vinegar, some electrolyte, some honey be healthy and everything. And it, and then you press it into a form or in my case, like a, a casserole dish and you end up getting this brick, a hard brick of sugar. If you make them the right size for however much room you have in your hive, whether that is using a shim or a feeder rim or whatever, you can make this essentially a giant piece of hard candy that lays right on the top bars. The bees can snuggle up there like when they run out of their food, they can snuggle right up to it. Their exhalation moistens it. And then so basically it's like they have their own lollipop. (laughs) It's like an umbrella lollipop and they can just be right under it all winter. That is a great thing. I, I love the sugar bricks. Use them a lot. The huge advantage over dry sugar is that it's like a lollipop. They do not mistake it for trash. Also, they do not have to leave the cluster to access it. And to me, that is the clincher. That is the secret of emergency winter feed is that they do not have to leave the cluster. And so I stumbled upon these winter patties, which to me is as close to in the U.S. as I can get to the baker's fondant that they have in the in the U.K. And it's this gooey patty. You can get it either just that's like just glop or you can get it that's between pieces of wax paper. And either way, you can put it between wax paper to make it easier to handle, just like a pollen patty. In both cases, you have this this soft, gooey stuff that can go on the top bars right over the bees. And for cold winter feeding, when they are truly out of food or for whatever reason they can't get to their food, I love it. I love either sugar bricks or the winter patties, or if you are in a place where you can get the kind that's just sugar as opposed to corn syrup, then fondant. But let's say right now you are in a spot where you still have an open window to feed syrup. That means that it's warm enough all the time that you don't run into the cold syrup problem. And then also you don't you don't want them having a hive full of open wet syrup in the winter because it's going to create a lot of moisture and that's just not ideal for them. The ideal situation is pretty much a box of capped natural honey. That's going to be the best case scenario because that's exactly how the bees have designed it. But if you are still feeding syrup, if you're able, then you probably want to be feeding two to one syrup, and that's two parts sugar to one part water. You can get very exacting, but from what I can tell, it doesn't terribly matter, but you use two coffee cans of sugar to one coffee can of water, it's going to be about right to make two to one syrup. Now, that's it's hard to mix, and for that reason, sometimes, particularly before its last call for syrup, can use five to three, meaning five cups of sugar, for example, three cups of water, and that's a, not quite as hard to mix as two to one, but there's tons of stuff online about all that. You don't have to get really tied up into the exact thing because its ballpark will work on all that. But the important part being that one-to-one is the thin syrup and its place is to create population, to create brood rearing. And then two-to-one, you are trying to put on weight. It's like brood, the window has closed, but you, they need weight. And that's as pretty much as close to honey as you can make sugar and water 
to that end a gadget that I have found very handy with whatever kind of syrup I'm mixing because I don't have any of the big commercial mixers like some people do. The little paint mixer gadget that I got at Lowe's that goes in my cordless drill it mixes that syrup wonderfully and my drill <laughs> I ha- I literally have a kitchen drill that just lives in the kitchen for mixing syrup um, when nobody else is around to be horrified at the uh, the mess in the kitchen. I'm going to give you guys the recipe for the sugar brick because I, I love Lori's sugar brick. I, I think that is a great thing and if I still had more time the winter patties they're not cheap but they are instant if you can get them so that's kind of why I have switched to those but the sugar bricks worked great for me for years and years and years for emergency feeding and I'll give you just this one other little thing you guys know that I use a very well insulated outer cover uh, definitely in the winter using the foam board and one of the beauties of that is if your outer cover is heavily insulated then you can you don't have to worry as much about condensation forming and dripping down on the bees now condensation the hives actually need some condensation inside the hives i think i i did a podcast i read an article to you guys on this some condensation some water forming naturally inside the hive is actually their primary winter water source but what you don't want to happen is for it to form in the middle of the of the outer cover and then drip onto the cluster cuz that will kill your bees so if you have an extremely insulated lid um <laughs> lid outer cover I call them lids then you don't have to worry about that and the other little thing that I tried the last couple of years and absolutely love is a piece of greenhouse plastic and that's just a heavy-duty plastic which I happen to have a stretch of greenhouse plastic that I've been using if you cut it the size of an inner cover you can put it on there and what it means is when you take that outer cover that heavily insulated outer cover off you've got that clear inner cover And so without exposing those bees to any drafts or air, I can glance down in there. I can see, are they, have they made their way up right to the top bars? If they are on the top bars and let's say I have a winter patty on there, is, is the winter patty, does it still look thick or have they eaten all the way through it? And I can see them through the plastic. Anyway, I have loved my see-through inner covers for winter and it's just covered out of uh, greenhouse plastic. And that works as long as you've taken care of the condensation problem. They, they didn't make the joke in the podcast about that. He talked about putting dry sugar on there and he said, sometimes he felt like it was just a psychological exercise to make himself feel better. I had to chuckle because I, like them, I will literally lay awake on a cold winter night. And if there's a hive I know is too light, lay awake and go, oh man, I should have done this to that hive. So it's just so much better to have them all loaded up, have them heavy, either naturally or with these emergency methods if you have to. But if, if they're heavy and if they're not heavy, If they have a nice thick sugar brick right on top of those bars or a nice thick winter patty right on top of those bars, then it's just easier to sleep at night in the winter. So I hope that helps and I hope I've told you enough in time to take action so that you too can sleep well in the winter knowing your bees, whatever else might be going wrong, that they won't starve on a cold winter's night. All right. Thank you all again. Thank you so much. 
patrons. You keep this going. If you would like to be a patron, please go to patreon.com slash fiveapple, F-I-V-E-A-P-P-L-E. And I will tell you, I have been recording some videos that I'm going to put on there for you of just little things in the yard and showing you little pieces of equipment that I like. Wishing every single one of you so well. Feel free to write me either on Patreon or at blueridge714 at gmail.com with any questions that you would like addressed in a podcast. Bye-bye.